if we can set goals that that make it bite-sized to achieve the long-run objective, then that brings forward also our motivation because we can see what we need to do today. That's Dr. Katie Mokman, behavioral scientist, Wharton professor, and best-selling author of How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. We all are born with slightly different constraints, um, but, but we all also have room to grow and change. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dr. Katie Milkman to discuss how to turn temptation and inertia into assets that fuel positive change, why timing can be everything when it comes to making a change, and how to develop habits that lead to higher performance. It is key in sort of habit startup mode to try to first create a plan. When is it that you want to execute the behavior? Not just what is it that you hope to achieve or what's your long run goal, but can you break it down and think about what exactly do you need to do, say, on a daily basis? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Dr. Katie Milkman is an award-winning Wharton professor, behavioral scientist, and the co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative. After earning a bachelor's degree from Princeton and a PhD from Harvard, Katie continued her research and unpacked her findings in her best-selling book, How to Change. I began our conversation by asking Katie, what exactly is behavioral economics? Behavioral economics is really the study of how people make decisions. And it's a blend of psychology and economics. It adds to standard economic theory some of the boundary conditions, some of the situations in which people make systematic and predictable errors in judgment. And uh, I first got introduced to it as a graduate student, actually, of all things, in engineering. I was studying computer science and business. I thought that was what I would devote my life to. But as a requirement, my first year in this PhD program, I had to take a microeconomics sequence at the graduate level. And I was at Harvard University, which turns out to be one of the places where behavioral economics was really taking off. About 20 years ago, it was a small but growing field. And in my introductory microeconomics sequence at graduate school, they talked about this new field, Danny Kahneman, who some people may be familiar with from his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, Nobel laureate now. He was sort of one of the founders, and they were talking about his early work, showing that people are systematically biased. And we make all these kinds of judgment errors from having trouble with self-control to overweighting losses relative to gains when we think about different opportunities we face. And I was just completely fascinated. I was hooked immediately because I saw, first of all, I saw myself and my friends in the research for the first time sort of it, it resonated with me as an accurate description of the way humans make choices. And I saw this huge opportunity to actually help improve judgment, improve outcomes once we could better understand what are the barriers to success, what are the limitations of, of human judgment. So that's how I got engaged with this field. And that's kind of what it is. Interesting. Before we get into it, because obviously there's, you wrote about so much of this in the book, but I, I want to start off just kind of the core of it, of this idea that 
it seems like most people want to be better or they want to do better. I think in, in whatever it is, whether it's personally, professionally, but but people don't become better because they want to do better. They they do better because they get better. So I, I guess at the core of it, I'm just curious the standpoint of like, what are some ways to get started making behavioral change? And then what are some of the common mistakes? Absolutely. Uh, we want to get better. That's our natural inclination is towards improvement, which is great. You can see why that's an adaptive feature of human nature and why we would be you know, it would be common to want to improve. But you're right that that wanting is not the same as doing. There's so many more steps. One of the things I have studied in my research is how to actually launch change. What are the ideal moments when change is most likely to happen when we're most motivated to go beyond wanting to acting. And um, what my co collaborators and I have found is that there are actually um, moments in our lives that feel like new beginnings. So the most familiar one might be New Year's, but there are others as well from the start of a new week to the celebration of a birthday to moving into a new role at work or uh, in your family that they give you this sense that you've closed one chapter in your life and you're opening another. Even if it's as small as a week, there's this sense of a fresh start and a clean slate that comes with it and an identity shift because you can say, okay, that was the old me last week or last year before my birthday that failed to achieve goals X, Y, and Z. But you get the sense that you have a clean slate and a fresh start and the new you can do it. And so what we found in our research is that at those moments that feel like new beginnings, people are more likely to start pursuing goals. They're more likely to do things like visit the gym, search for the term diet on Google. They're more likely to set goals on popular goal-setting website around everything from their finances to their education to their health. And so if we're trying to think about how do we actually move beyond just wanting to change to actually taking action on it, looking for these moments that are essentially propellants. They they supercharge our motivation and make it easier for us to, you know, jump and actually take action can be really valuable. And when we're trying to coach someone else or encourage someone else, if we're if you're in the role of a manager, a teacher, um, or literally a sports coach, looking for a fresh start moment in the life of the the people you're encouraging to make change can be really valuable. We've found that when we for instance, highlight dates on a calendar that correspond to fresh starts like the, the first day of spring or a birthday, and then invite people to make change on those dates, people are more motivated and find that more attractive than if we just invite change on an ordinary moment. And, and what do you find to be the difference? So for example, on New Year's Day, tons of people set New Year's resolutions and they're, the gym is never more crowded, right? Than it is at the start of January. Yes. But then it, it it seems like however many people set those resolutions in February, most of them seem <laughs> to fall off. And I'm just curious, what's the difference between somebody who maintains that habit or builds on that habit versus the one who abandons it? Yeah, it's such a great question. I have to say, by the way, that because I'd done this research on the fresh start effect, which is what we call this phenomenon, a lot of people, when they heard I was writing a book about behavior change, assumed I was going to write a book about fresh starts and their incredible motivational power to get us going towards change. And my immediate response was, that would be a really useless book because fresh starts only get you started and they don't get you to the finish line. So I wrote a chapter in this book about behavior change that focuses on fresh starts. But the rest of the book is about strategies that you can use now that you've got that motivation to begin to actually get 
further than February if it's a New Year's resolution. That is the challenge with so many goals is that we need more than just the motivation to begin. We actually need tools and tactics to help us overcome the many barriers to change that can stand in the way of success. So there's a lot of different strategies that work. And and a key lesson I've learned in my research is that it really depends what barrier you're facing to change, what internal barrier, I should say. I focus in my research on studying the internal barriers. There are, of course, many external barriers that can get in our way of change from, you know, whether or not you have the financial resources you need, um, the, the structure in your environment that you need. Those are all worth attention to. But there's also internal barriers that can be obstacles to change from hating the, the process and finding it deeply unenjoyable to old habits, to forgetfulness, uh, to lack of confidence. And depending on what that barrier is, there's a different set of tools that research suggests can be helpful. And if you apply the wrong tools, you don't get nearly as far. So I'm sure we're going to dig into a bunch of those. Uh, Let me just sort of high level say for now that um, the tactics depend on what what is holding you back? And so a really important part of the process in planning, how are you going to get from your New Year's resolution to lasting change is starting to diagnose, okay, why is it that I am not exercising regularly or I'm not hitting my deadlines at work? I'm not eating the way I want to be eating or um, practicing meditation at the rate I want to be practicing it. Whatever your goal is, it's really important to interrogate those obstacles that are holding you back first. And, and you mentioned at the really at the start of the book that we tend to be overconfident about how easy it will be to be self-disciplined. So we, we think about future me that will be able to make good choices, but too often like present me succumbs to that temptation. And you mentioned this concept of present bias, if you, if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I'm so glad you went to present bias. So this is probably the most pernicious obstacle when it comes to behavior change. It's certainly the one that, that I find nastiest. And it's our tendency to care more and weight more in our decisions, whatever instant gratification we will get from a choice relative to the long-term consequences that will ensue. So optimally, of course, a decision maker would sort of think about the global picture, not only what joy and pleasure I'll get today from a choice, but also what the long-term consequences will be, right? If I choose to blow my paycheck um, all in, you know, on one fancy new gadget and don't set anything aside for retirement, uh, we would recognize that that's not maybe a great decision because in the long run, we'll regret it. But because we are wired to focus more on the present than on the long run, we make decisions that are short-sighted too often. We, you know, overspend when we should save. We overindulge when we should cut back. And so this can be a huge barrier to change that tendency to focus on the instant gratification. So, in my research and and research by others has has started looking at okay given that this is a really pernicious and persistent problem what are some of the tools that are most useful for overcoming it if that's the thing that's standing in the way say say you want to exercise regularly which is a pretty common goal and you hate the activity of exercise it's going to be really hard to motivate yourself to actually do it because of present bias. You know you should, but you'll always say like, oh, tomorrow, tomorrow we'll start that workout routine. Today I'm going to sit on the couch and enjoy. So how do we bust through? There's sort of two strategies. One is the carrot, 
which is to try to actually make it more instantly gratifying to do the thing that's good for you. And the other is the stick, which is to make the consequences so steep of failing to follow through that you will actually decide it is optimal, even with your present bias, to take action now. So those are the those are the two sets of tools. And I'm happy to dive in and start talking about some of my favorite tactics, if that would be helpful. And I see you're nodding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I'd love to hear. So I know when you, when you mentioned this, like you talk about like temptation bundling and gamification. And I'd love if you talked about when this works and then when it when it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the most, I think, powerful tools that we can use to change our behavior for the better when we face present bias is actually to make it instantly gratifying to do the things that are good for us in the long run. And this insight, I'd say the the best research on this comes from my colleague, uh, Ayelet Fishbach at the University of Chicago and uh, Caitlin Woolley at Cornell University. They've done research showing that when we have a goal that we want to achieve, most of us think, I should just look for the most efficient path to get to my end objective. That's the way to go. But a small subset of people think about goal pursued a different way. They actually look for the most fun way to pursue their goals. So if you, I'm going to go back to the gym example. If you think about the gym, you, it might be the difference between heading for the maximally efficient Stairmaster to get to your goal of getting fit versus going to Zumba class with a friend, which may not be as efficient, but it's going to be a lot more fun. And what Ayelet and Caitlin found is that if we actually encourage people to look for the more fun way to pursue their goals, they persist longer. But most people don't have that intuition. Most people look for the most efficient way and then they quit quickly because they aren't enjoying in the moment the experience of goal pursuit. So I think this is an incredibly important insight. I often call it sort of the Mary Poppins effect because if you remember Mary Poppins, she sings about the spoonful of sugar that we need to get the medicine to go down. If we recognize we need to make it fun to pursue our goals, we're going to be much more likely to persist. And one strategy I have studied for doing this very specifically that you just alluded to is temptation bundling. And I studied that actually as a graduate student. It, it came out of, I call it me search. It came out of my own struggles to exercise more regularly. And I found a tactic that got me engaged and excited to go to the gym was actually only letting myself indulge in the entertainment I craved when I was exercising. And it was this magical solution to two problems I had. One problem was I couldn't motivate myself to go to the gym at the end of a long day. And the other was I was wasting time on, you know, binge watching favorite, my favorite TV shows when I should have been doing my classwork. And so I found if I only let myself enjoy those indulgences at the gym, magic happened. I suddenly started craving trips to the gym to find out what happened next in my latest, you know, thriller. Time would fly while I was there and I'd come home rejuvenated and energized and ready to focus on the work I needed to get done because I'd already gotten that entertainment fix out of the way and I was getting the exercise I needed in to, to feel healthy and and great. So um, it turns out I've, I've studied temptation bundling improvement. It's not just me, but uh, lots of us can benefit from linking something really tempting and enjoyable with, with things that we find to be a chore on their own. It creates a hook that gets us engaged and we can do it with exercise, but there's other ways you can imagine doing it too from, you know, only letting yourself listen to your favorite podcast, maybe this one while you're cooking a fresh meal for your family or doing household chores, only picking up some snack that you really crave on the way to hit the books at the library or while working on an important project for work that you've been dreading. There are many different tools we can use to temptation bundle and that can be a way to overcome present bias. 
it, it seems like I, I won't do an ad for for Peloton, but it seems like Peloton really gets this right in, in terms, specifically the, the gamification. I've always been interested in the two business models. I, I read an interview that like the CEO of Peloton did, I think about a year ago, where they compared themselves to like the traditional gym model. And most gyms are are not really aiming to incentivize their members to to show up to the gym because, as, as it turns out, if everybody went to the gym, they don't actually have the space and capacity. And their aim is to actually get the most people paying for memberships that don't go to the gym. Whereas Peloton is just the opposite. And they actually want people on those bikes. So they've gamified their entire model with like badges and high fives. And like they've created like community around it and leaderboards. And it seems like that's created, you know, I guess much better stickiness, if you will. But you also describe that sometimes gamification doesn't work. And it really is a question of, of everyone wanting to play the game that is being played. And, and if people don't buy in, the results won't be there. Yes. Okay. So, so first of all, let me also just defend gyms for a moment and say from working with a number of gyms to try to increase the attractiveness of exercise, I think they get a bad rap and that most, most of the gyms, at least that I have had, you know, where I've interacted with their leadership, they do want people coming because they know you won't maintain your membership if you never show up. So, well, just not, just not all of them. Not all of them at the same time. Not, not all at once. <laughs> right. Yeah, ideally right. at different times. Spread out your gym attendance. But they want you coming so that they don't have churn and need to acquire new customers. For the for the most part, it seems like the CEOs of successful gyms actually are working towards that goal. Um, okay, so done with my defensive gyms. Uh, let me move on to talking about gamification. So one of the things that's really interesting in the research on gamification, first of all, let me just define gamification. I learned a lot about this for my book because I had studied sort of the individual and how the individual could make things fun. But I wanted to also be able to write about how organizations could try to use this tool to help people overcome present bias. And a key way that organizations often try to make work fun or make goals fun is through gamification. And the definition of gamification is basically just taking game-like features from leaderboards and badges and stars and levels that you'd associate with a game like Monopoly or Pokemon and, and bringing them in to incentivize or motivate uh, behavior change in some other context that isn't actually a game. So that's kind of the definition. And what's interesting is that the research is pretty mixed on how effective this is, despite the fact that given what we just talked about, present bias, you'd think adding these kinds of bells and whistles, this wrapping paper that makes something feel more like fun, disguising it and camouflaging it so that it feels like a game seems like a great idea. And I think the challenge comes in from research by my colleagues, Nancy Rothbard and Ethan Mollick at, at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. They found that it can be really hard to make it not feel like forced fun when you are a manager and you're trying to use gamification to motivate employees to achieve a goal. They did this one experiment with a sales force where they tried to gamify sales calls, you know, successful sales and everything was around a basketball game and there was like a bottle of champagne you want if you got more sales and it was a, you know, a layup or a jump shot. And if you got different kinds of successes and leaderboards were added, a lot of people, it turned out, felt like this was just forced fun and they didn't actually find it enjoyable. It was just annoying. And, and that could backfire. So one of the challenges with using it in, in a, an organizational setting is that you have to thread the needle and, and make sure it actually is inducing enjoyment and isn't just annoying. Uh, it doesn't feel manipulative, which can make things worse. One 
silver lining, I'll say, is that a lot of situations where we want to achieve goals ourselves, like Peloton, right? People are self-motivated to achieve that goal. You could also think of the example of something, you know, many of the apps that use gamification, like Duolingo, which is trying to help you learn a language. There's a lot of game-like elements. I think they don't run the risk of backfiring when they use these tools as much because you are bought in, you are working towards this goal, you don't feel manipulated, you're you're seeing it as an engagement strategy to help you reach a shared goal. And so I think it's less of a risk in those contexts. And if you get the formula right, if you actually can use these bells and whistles, the competition to motivate people, uh, then that that can make the experience more positive. And there is some research showing that, you know, giving people small accolades when they achieve something uh, that they are eager to achieve themselves is motivating. It makes them feel great. They come back. They persist longer when they're getting those awards for a self-sought objective. But it, it's just tricky when it might feel manipulative. And I know you mentioned earlier, like when we talked about the carrot, almost like positive reinforcement, you mentioned the stick. Ben Hardy was on a podcast several months ago. He talked about this idea of forcing functions uh, where essentially you make the the downside so great, it's almost like burning the ships, if you will, that you you create this constraint where you will do it. But where does that, I'm curious when that works versus when it doesn't, because I'll give an example. There's this alarm clock for people that struggle to get out of bed that will start to shred like money as you put it in there. And some people say, okay, that's great. I'd be willing to put a dollar in there, but not a hundred dollars, right? So I'm just curious when this works and when it doesn't work. Yeah, it's a terrific, terrific question. And by the way, academics call these commitment devices where you voluntarily impose some penalty on yourself or some constraint on yourself, you know, with the objective of achieving a larger goal, right? So you say, you put money on the line in the case of the alarm clock you described that you will you say i'm going to forfeit this money if i don't hit this deadline for work and and you declare a referee someone will hold you accountable a lot of people by the way find this really counterintuitive like why would i ever voluntarily part with my money or constrain myself but it does make sense once you recognize that it's a reaction to present bias it's to make the price of your vice so high that even if you overweight the present you still aren't going to want to you know make this mistake so it's like, you know, speed limits are imposed by others. It's a fine for to prevent us from giving into temptation, but it's like putting a speed limit on yourself. And they are powerful. So research shows that they they work in many cases, giving people who want to quit smoking the opportunity to put money on the line that they'll have to forfeit if they fail a nicotine or cotinine urine test in six months, increases smoking cessation by about 30% relative to just giving people traditional tools. So they work. But you're absolutely right in asking the question of sort of what are the boundary conditions? And, you know, I think the answer is very much it depends, unfortunately. So it's, it's not as like nice and crisp and precise of an answer as I'd like to be able to give you. It depends on whether or not you've set the stakes high enough that you feel like it's the point of no return. And if it's a goal that you really can achieve simply by working harder, right, if there's external constraints, it's going to be potentially really demotivating to be facing a steep fine and not actually be able to just push through with effort to achieve that goal, right? So say other people are involved in the objective you're hoping to achieve and they're not motivated and they're what holds you back, then getting fined on top of having other people hold you back could be incredibly demotivating and backfire. So some people, uh, and in some contexts, recognize that it doesn't make sense to use these really steep 
tools like commitment devices and soft commitments can be better rather than the hard commitments. So rather than putting money on the line, maybe you'd just tell some other people you'd be ashamed to fail in front of about your goal and ask them to hold you accountable. That's sort of a commitment device, but the penalty isn't as steep. It's not, you know, your whole life savings disappears if you fail to achieve the goal. And and probably if there really were adverse circumstances that get in the way, those people who would have shamed you will understand and accommodate that. So it's a personal choice. It depends on the situation when this is the right tool. But the evidence is very strong that creating your own constraints can be a useful way in some circumstances to overcome present bias. Is it ever a question of of commitment, like how committed someone is to something they want to do? So they they may say, yes, I really want to wake up early and, and that's incredibly important to me. But when that device is shredding the money, they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm willing to lose a dollar, but not a hundred dollars. And does that is that essentially them saying I'm not that committed to waking up early or is it something else? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It's uh, you're pricing your commitment, essentially, right? Like, how valuable is it to me? How much am I willing to put on the line? And if the answer is a dollar, but not a hundred dollars, that tells you something about how important this goal is. And and so putting the right price on your vice, if you're going to use one of these commitment device style tools, is going to be really important. If you put too small of a price, it may not be very motivating and you may fail a lot and just lose a lot of money. But if you put too high of a price, then you also may really regret it, especially if you run into some constraint that you weren't anticipating that obstructs your path. Constraints often control our thought processes. Even things like exercise and diet revolve around guardrails and defined limitations. I asked Katie to elaborate on how these constraints impact our decision-making ability and how we can become more motivated to reach our goals. The research on goal setting does suggest that when we set goals for ourselves, we end up being more motivated to achieve those goals than when someone else externally sets them. And there's actually some new research that's literally just come out in the last week around exercise from my colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania, Kevin Volp and Mitesh Patel, showing that in that context, self-set goals are also more motivating and result in more success than externally imposed ones. And I think that has to do with buy-in and and how important this then becomes to you. If it's something that you have bought into and set for yourself, it seems natural and understandable why you would work harder towards that goal than, than something that's externally imposed, even when the costs are so high as a loss of life or a loss of years of life. Again, present bias has so much to do with it. We overweight the instant gratification, and that leads us to make these crazy choices when you think about you know smoking or you know failing to exercise and eat right so often it's this micro focus on the the moment to moment gratification we'll get that leads to those decisions. But if we can set goals that that make it bite sized to achieve the long run objective, then that brings forward also our motivation because we can see what we need to do today and tomorrow, and that's easier as well. You know, this this is so incredibly fascinating to me, and, and I will say, you know, just working with, with so many business owners nationwide, I'll say that one hundred percent of them want to either grow their business, support their team at a higher level, support their family, make a greater impact in their communities. And as, as you describe, like our intentions are only loosely predictive of our behaviors. So where I, where I start to wonder is, of course, everybody wants to be better or they want to grow or they want to make this greater impact. But how much of this in terms of like that uh, internal drive is intrinsic, like meaning that like how much of that want, that hunger, if you will, uh, is intrinsic versus, you know, because someone else could say, hey, I wish I had the motivation. I wish I didn't procrastinate so much. I wish that it was all 
all there because I do want to achieve this outcome versus people that have that intrinsically. So I'm just curious how much of it can be learned versus how much of it are we born with? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I should say first, I am not an expert on this topic, but I sometimes hang out with people who are. And one of them is Angela Duckworth, who has absolutely studied traits. And this is um, sort of in the area of personality psychology. So one lesson I have learned from talking to her is it seems like just about everything in the world is about, you know, if you roughly estimate half nature, half nurture, you'd be on par with probably what's true. You know, maybe it's 30-70 in some cases, maybe it's 60-40, but 50-50 is a pretty good guess. So what that means is that, that of course, some of it you're stuck with, <laughs> some of it, you know, is in ingrown, but there's room for improvement and there's room to change your circumstances and your path and your approach so that you can achieve more. And I actually think that's really encouraging. Recognizing, of course, yes, we all are born with slightly different constraints, but we all also have room to grow and change. And I don't know if you've heard this expression, but we're all committed to our existing set of habits. So there's there's sometimes there's good habits and bad habits, right? So for some people, I'll just give an example. At five o'clock, they're lined up at the gym. Um, and for others, at five o'clock, they're lined up at the liquor store, right? Both both habits that take place at five o'clock. And you know, when you mentioned that like our existing habits at times lead us to live on autopilot. So when we are changing behavior, how much of it is like replacing another habit versus just creating a new one? Yeah, it's a great question. And it certainly depends a lot on your circumstances and probably your age. And, um, you know, I know we both have kids and that's a whole other thing that that shapes and constrains habits and routines. So, you know, it's a that's a big old it depends. Actually, the best tools and tactics for building new positive habits are, I think, the same in both cases, whether we're replacing old ones or building new ones. It is key in sort of habit startup mode to try to first, you know, create a plan. When is it that you want to execute the behavior? Not just what is it that you hope to achieve or what's your long run goal, but can you break it down and think about what exactly do you need to do, say, on a daily basis? Um, when will you do it? How will you do it? You know, what will what will your social supports look like? And then really is true that the more you practice something, the more it becomes habitual. And we think about practice and deliberate practice as something you do to achieve mastery, which is absolutely true, right? You know, if you want to be a great basketball player, you have to shoot, you know, thousands and thousands of basketballs. And if you want to become a great pianist, you have to practice over and over again and get that feedback. Um, it turns out that building habits, though, is also about repetition. And so if there's something you want to do that's good for you in the long run, trying to think of it as something you want to practice, just like you'd practice the piano, um, you know, doing it in, in an ideally a somewhat structured and consistent way, though also building flexibility so that you have sort of a backup plan if you can't do it in exactly the same way at the same time every day. Do you have, you know, what What's the second best and practice that as well uh, and try to reward yourself for that practice because rewards are what what makes habits sticky. Once you repeat the behavior and you see that reward, you see the good outcome. And maybe, by the way, a lot of the things that have long term rewards, we need to bring those rewards forward by you know, making it fun or telling other people about our successes so they can celebrate with us, tracking them in some way. Those things are going to help us build lasting 
positive habits. So repetition, reward, some degree of consistency, but also enough flexibility so that when life throws you a curveball, you will still be able to enact that habit. Not always 7 a.m. or always 5 p.m. is if you if you get too rigid, actually my research has shown you don't build the most lasting habits. So some degree of flexibility is important to build in as you're in startup mode. And I love in, in one of the chapters, I think it was a chapter on laziness. You talk about the fact that I think some people look to people that are either like high achieving at work or let's say they're, they're super committed to their fitness goals or whatever it might be that sometimes those that aren't that look at these people and think they are, they've got this like pre-natural ability to resist temptation when instead these people are just on like consistent routines. And when you ask many of them, like let's the example you gave, I think ones that run, let's say three miles a day, they don't look at that as something like they have to you know, motivate themselves to do everything. That's just what they do at this time every single day. So it's just almost becomes on autopilot. But I hear different estimates every time I ask this question of like, how long does it take to build a habit? So like, how long does it actually take to build a habit? I'll tell you why you hear different estimates. It's because there's no one number. Um, Though, by the way, one of my favorite fun facts for habit nerds is that for a long time, people had this number 21 days in mind. And it turns out Wendy Wood at the University of Southern California, who's probably the world's expert on habits, she debunked this one for me. I said, you know, Wendy, where does it come from? And she said, I traced it back to a study done in the 1970s on plastic surgery, where people who have had plastic surgery, it takes about 21 days for them to say they're comfortable with their new face. So somehow that fact fueled this belief that it takes 21 days to form a habit. But what the research really does seem to show, and this is based on work by Colin Kammerer at Caltech that I've gotten to be involved with using machine learning and different data sets to try to map out actually how long does it take before behavioral patterns become really consistent when it comes to things like gym going or hand sanitizing in hospitals by caregivers. And the fact of the matter is it depends. Uh, The context is really important. Uh, The more sort of simple the the behavior, it seems like probably the faster it forms. So order of magnitude weeks to, to form habits around things like hand washing in hospitals among caregivers, order of magnitude months to form habits when it comes to something like, you know, getting in your car, putting on your gym clothes, driving to the gym in a consistent way. And there's huge variance across people. There's, you know, there's a mean, but there's a lot, a lot of spread in the in the length of time it takes to form habits. So recognize that it isn't, it's, it's not a week ever. Um, the more complex the behavior, the longer it's going to take. And it's okay if it feels like it's taking a while. It doesn't mean you'll never get to the point where it starts to feel automatic and become easy. It should get easier and easier the more you do it. And to become truly habitual, some things can take as long as six months. But that just, you know, is more reason to think about it as a deliberate practice to build to that end goal of it's a habit and it no longer requires exerting huge self-control to actually make the right choice. Our behavior can be greatly influenced by those around us. In fact, Katie believes that the closer we are to someone with a situation that resembles our own, the more likely we are to be influenced by them. I asked Katie to speak to the impact communities and other external influences can make on behavioral change. It might be the most important factor. And one of the things that's tough is it's one of the more difficult factors to change, right? Because we don't choose our community always. Often it chooses us. There's a huge influence that social forces play on our ability to achieve our goals. The people who we surround ourselves with show us what's possible. They give us hints as to what we can do to achieve similar objectives in life. And so to the extent that you can actually craft a community of like-minded individuals that you can build groups um, that you socialize with intentionally who have similar goals and shared aspirations, 
is really, really valuable. Uh, it's a reason, frankly, that so many of the organizations built around behavior change, you know, from religious organizations to organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous or um, WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, they recognize this and, and groups are such a huge part of the techniques they use to help us get to our end objectives. But you can do this deliberately in your own life and recognize if you can form a group of people with similar goals, whether it's people who want to run a marathon or people who have similar business objectives, spending time with those people, learning their tactics. I often talk about the power of forming an advice club can be really useful because you see what works for other people who are similar in various ways in terms of their objectives and ideally their their background and skills. And you can copy and paste what's working for them and start learning it and using it yourself. But another feature of sort of an advice club where you you have a group of like-minded people, you seek advice, you see what's working for them, ask what I should do in this situation, is actually when you get asked for input, um, when someone comes to you and says, you know, what would you do in this situation? That turns out to be incredibly valuable for your own outcomes. So being put in the role of advice giver boosts your confidence that you actually know more than maybe you realized. It makes you feel like, I can do this if someone's coming to me and looking to me for wisdom. It causes you to dredge up insights that you might not otherwise, because now to help someone else, you have to figure this out. And then once you've advised someone else to take a set of actions, you're more likely to follow through on them yourself because you don't want to be hypocritical. And so social groups that have similar goals give you the opportunity to be in the role of advice giver and role model, which, which benefits you just as watching others succeed benefits you. So there's all these powerful ways that groups can shape our outcomes for the better. They can also, of course, shape our outcomes for the worse, which is why curating them carefully can be a huge asset. Yeah, and we've used the term before, like mental nutrition. You know, who are you getting your information from? Uh, because you can have different groups. One group could be talking about all the obstacles and, you know, it just has a very pessimistic outlook. Whereas another group is talking about opportunities and, and the people you surround yourself with. It, it could drastically differ in terms of how you approach situations. So there's that the mental nutrition component. There's the accountability component. At the very end of the book, I you talk about changing for good. And, and I'd love if you could just briefly elaborate on this because you talk about like transformative behavior change being more like treating a chronic disease than, than curing a rash. Yes, <laughs> maybe not the um, you know most attractive of uh, comparisons, but one of the maybe most important insights that I have ever gotten from a conversation came from talking to one of my colleagues at Penn's Medical School, actually, whose research I've even cited in this very conversation, Kevin Volpe, who's a brilliant behavioral scientist, an MD, who does a lot of interesting work on, on behavior change around health outcomes. And I was talking to him about a study that had had mixed success, and I was really frustrated by this study. So it was a study I had done with Angela Duckworth and actually 24-Hour Fitness Gyms, where we had developed 54 different behavior change programs in partnership with dozens of scientists and piloted them on, on tens of thousands of people to try to create lasting change. And the programs all lasted for a month. And the objective was to create change that would last permanently, really, you know, not just for a month, but for years and years in, in folks' exercise patterns. And we'd had success and failure. Success looked like during that month when the program was in place and people were, you know, hearing from us regularly, getting encouragement and so on, really 
good things happened. We saw a lot of positive change in behavior. But then after that month ended and we looked out to the future, we saw that a huge amount of the change we'd created decayed. So I was talking to Kevin and saying, you know, what, uh, lamenting, why didn't the change last? It's so frustrating. We did all the right things for this month. We saw all these benefits and then it sort of fell away. And he had this great comment. He said, you know, Katie, when we treat someone for a chronic disease, someone comes in, we diagnose them, say, with diabetes, we don't put them on insulin for a month and expect them to be cured. We treat them for a lifetime because we recognize that the things that are preventing them from, you know, that are making them diabetic, they're not going anywhere. So why do we think behavior change is any different? Why do we treat it as a temporary state that needs to be cured rather than a chronic state? Because all these barriers to change that, you know, we're present bias, that we sometimes lack confidence in our ability, that we can be forgetful, that bad habits are easier to fall back on than good because we take the path of least resistance. Those things aren't temporary. And so why would we give them a temporary treatment? And I thought it was such an important and valuable insight. It was like one of those light bulb moments in my life. And it's true when you look at the data, so many of the tools that we know can help change behavior, they work in a durable way if they're applied durably. But once you take them away, they stop working, right? So if, if you've found a way to get to the gym regularly by bundling it with your Netflix binge watching of your favorite shows, and suddenly you shut down your Netflix subscription, the gym is going to go back to not being fun. And why are you going to want to keep going? So there's no reason to shut down the tools. I think there's sort of like a glass half empty or a glass half full way of looking at it. And I try to be, I tend to be more of an optimist and say, look, the tools that help us create temporary change, we can keep using them to create lasting change. But it is really important to recognize there's not quick fixes out there that if you sort of try something for a month and say, okay, I'm done. I did it for a month. Now it'll just last. For the most part, you're going to be disappointed. You know, there are some things we can put on autopilot through practice and repetition, but the reinforcement part is really important to continuing most behavior change. And and I know, I mean, Katie, we, we barely scratched scratch the surface of the stuff. And, and I'd certainly encourage everyone listening to read the book because, you know, when you give answers like it depends for someone listening, they they may want some, some prescription for all all scenarios. But as, as you describe, it really is important to first diagnose those internal obstacles and, and have solutions that are customized to your situation. So that's why I would encourage everyone to really spend the time to read the book. Uh, so, Katie, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what what does being a game changer mean to you? I think, um, oh, it's such a great question. First of all, thank you for having me on the show. This has been so much fun. And I guess when I think about what it means to be a game changer, I think about the importance of always looking for new opportunities and ideas and sort of having a growth mindset. Carol Dweck of Stanford Psychology Department, who has shown how important it is to be looking at life as a, a set of opportunities for growth. And when you encounter failure, to think of it as just a learning opportunity, as opposed to something diagnostic of who you are. So when I think about game changers, I think they're people who are always looking to grow, always have that growth mindset, as opposed to a fixed mindset that can be such an obstacle to success. I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Katie Milkman for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Katie said that transformative behavior change is more like treating a chronic disease than curing a rash. Rather than trying to address a symptom, we must get to the root cause of our issues if we seek to become higher performing and more productive versions of our present selves. 
You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Dr. Katie Milkman, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with high-profile trial attorney and founding partner at Claggett & Sykes, Sean Claggett. If we didn't do contingency work, there'd be no access to justice and big, huge corporations would completely and utterly control and destroy this country. And they'd have no problem doing it. And look at what what does it really come down to, right? Those huge corporations, it's to make a very few people very wealthy at the expense of everybody else in society. And that drives me nuts. I have no problem with capitalism. I love capitalism, but you gotta be responsible. And if you're hurting people, own up, step up, do the right thing. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 o